when you're passionate about something, you want people to know about it. Whatever it is you're passionate about, you want people to be passionate with you. And when we're passionate about things, we get excited and and we want to talk about it. And and we want people to be on board with us. We want people to think the way we think, to experience what we've experienced, because we're we're passionate about it. And it is no less true, in fact, it may well be more true, when we start talking about our religious convictions, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And hopefully, we're passionate about being followers of Jesus. Hopefully, we don't follow Jesus apathetically. I mean, to be a Christian is to engage ourselves fully in Jesus. And that is a good thing to do. It's the calling of Christ. It is, in is many ways, what it means to be the church. But what happens when people aren't as excited and passionate about Jesus as we are? Or what if people are actually antagonistic toward us about our passion for Jesus? How do we respond to that? I think our natural human response is to become more passionate, more aggressive, more in your face, more will let me tell you. And the question that's been rolling around in my mind this week is, is that the right thing for us to do? Is that the right way to respond? And what's been nagging at me is this passage in Acts 24, 25, 26, as well as actually a number of other places in the book of Acts and other parts of the scriptures. But in this particular case, Paul's response to being falsely accused brought up before Roman, pagan, idolatrous officials and having to explain himself and finding them opposed, apathetic, uninterested and how he responds to that. I would think in this moment when, when the Felix says to him, or Festus, I guess, says to him, I don't know about you, but I think of Festus, I always think of gun smoke, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Does that picture come to your mind when you think of that, that word? Just, let's just get that out there, the elephant in the room, right? Every time I read this passage, if you haven't seen gun smoke, then you ask somebody or watch it, go to Netflix and watch it. You understand what I'm saying. But, you know, here he says to him, he listens to Paul's defense, and we didn't get all of this. You know, we read a little bit of it, because if we read the whole thing, that's all we would do. Um, and... And so Paul gives his defense and he shares his testimony about being on the, on the road to Damascus and all the change in his life and everything God has done and, and about Jesus resurrected from the dead. And, and Festus says to him, Paul, you're out of your mind. One translation says, you're insane, Paul. And that would be the moment for me to want to say back to him, no, you're insane. You don't know what you're talking about. I have the truth on my side. I'm right. You're wrong. And I'll prove to you you're wrong. In fact, let me ask God to do something to show you how wrong you are. But instead, Paul is respectful. He's gentle. He's kind. You don't get any kind of that attitude from Paul. He makes his defense. He speaks the truth. He's passionate about Jesus and the truth of Christ. 
But he does it, he communicates in a way that, that isn't unlike Jesus. I guess that's what it comes down to, is that Paul communicates in a way that looks like Jesus. And maybe the church, when we talk about how does the church communicate Jesus, how does the church communicate about Christ, maybe the simplest answer is we communicate Christ to people like Christ communicates to people. Isn't it fascinating? I keep coming back to this. It's a powerful passage. It stirs me every time we read it from Philippians chapter 2. When Paul writes, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, be like Jesus. Communicate to people the way Jesus communicated. And Jesus was God. And he had every right to claim, I'm right, I'm God. But instead he chose the path of humility and servanthood and even death. There is something I see of that in Paul as he addresses these people, his every right to be more aggressive with them and more in their face, and he isn't. He refuses to do that. I think of what Paul writes to to the church at Corinth. And he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to God's church just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. We can be so passionate about what we believe, we actually are offensive to people in a negative way. And surely he's thinking of what Jesus says, that on judgment day, everyone's going to be held responsible for every careless word. We tend to think that means bad words. What if it also means hurtful words? What if it means words that, that make it more difficult for people to come to Jesus? What if it's words that put up roadblocks between people and Jesus? Walls instead of bridges. It's a struggle for all of us. It's not just people who are outside the church. We, we, do, we struggle with this with each other too. When we have our difficulties with each other in the church. How do we respond in those moments? I, I keep coming back to a story I read about E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones was a, a missionary statesman in India for uh, probably four decades. Maybe the 40s through the 70s. And uh, he was a, a great leader of the church, the Methodist church in India. He was well known around the world, wrote many, many books, was friends of uh, people like uh, Gandhi and, and others and and he started the Christian ashram movement. Ashrams were something that the Hindus did. And he said, this is a good idea, but let's just make it Christian. And he started that in India and it spread around the world. And uh, there was a, a time in his life where he supported another man in his ministry. And then the time came where he could no longer do that. And this man was upset about it. And he publicly took E. Stanley Jones to task. And he spread rumors about him that were untrue. And E. Stanley Jones was upset about it, as you and I would be. And he did what you and I would probably do, too. He sat down and he wrote a letter to this guy. And it's the kind of letter that as you get into it, it becomes more and more enjoyable to write. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's just like, man, it is flowing now and I am cooking. And you, you know, the, the ink on the page is getting heavier and heavier as you write. And he penned this letter 
vitriolic and, you know, this is the truth and, and, you know, all this stuff. There must have been something in his spirit that thought maybe that wasn't the best idea. But he wrestled with it. And so he sent it to some of the other leaders of the ashram movement and asked for their opinion. And they send it back and at the top of the letter they'd written three words. Not sufficiently redemptive. And, and he said, you know, God just spoke to me and I knew they were right. I shredded the letter, threw it away, and I said, God, you're just going to have to take care of my reputation. I, I find that story interesting in our technological age. You know, there is something about, there's something valuable about sitting down to write a letter like we used to do. You have to pull out a piece of paper. You have to get something to write with. Or maybe you type it up on a typewriter. It takes longer to write as you do it. When you get done, you have to fold it, find an envelope, put it in the envelope, seal it, put the return address on, put the... Well, maybe a lot of people don't put the return address on. You, and you, you, you address it, you put a stamp on it, then you have to get to the post office. And in all of that time that it takes to do that... We have a little bit of space to hear God's still small voice saying, you really want to do that? Don't you think there's a better way than that? And we miss out on that sometimes now when all you have to do is click new email. You don't even usually have to type in the whole address. It fills it in for you, their email address, and you just start writing and you click send. And in a millisecond, what you may wish you hadn't done is done. We ought to step back, think a little bit, ponder a little bit. It's one of the reasons why prayer is so important to this process of being the church, and particularly about communication, because in prayer we give God some space and some time to get through to us, to help us stop, think, ponder, to be convicted. And we all need that. We all need time in prayer to step back and let God convict us and to pour out our heart to God and to be honest about our struggle and, and, our, and our passion and, and how frustrated we are and upset we are and hurt we are. And in that moment, those moments of prayer, which often takes a while, which maybe is one reason why the hour is a good thing when we set up the prayer vigil. Sometimes it takes a while for us to come to our senses in those moments, God has an opportunity to work in us and to stop us. And this is not about, about not standing up for the truth. It's how we stand up for the truth. It's how we communicate the truth. You know, and, and, and I know it's hard. In fact, one of my greatest fears today in talking about this is that I will come across as you know, I've got this solved as, I don't know, condescending, maybe a little arrogant. I've figured it out as I'm trying to convince us not to be condescending and arrogant in how we treat people. And it worries me, it scares me, because I, am, I struggle with this as much, if not more, as anybody else does. It's, it's, it's a struggle for all of us. And we've all been in positions where we wished we had said something different. And hopefully we've had some moments where we were glad for the Spirit to convict us. We stand up for the truth, but how do we do that? 
In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, when people come to you and want to know about Jesus, be ready to give them a defense. But do it in a gentle and respectful way. Such a profound passage, especially from someone like Peter, who is you know, infamous for his impetuous behavior. He says, look, and maybe he says this because he's learned. He had to learn the hard way. Gentleness, respectfulness. I think the church communicates most effectively in a spirit of humility. That spirit of Jesus that says, I may be right, but I don't have all the answers. You know, when you get into a spirit of humility, when we commit ourselves to that, it's hard because that means humble people tend to get walked on. It's just, you know, it's honest truth. Humble people tend to be taken advantage of. But in humility, we have the advantage of listening. And sometimes we just don't listen to people. And, and we miss out on things that they're dealing with and the situation and what's happening. All we're doing is being, we're just aggressive at people. And and maybe if we listen to them, we have a better understanding of why they have done what they've done, said what they've said. Someone was telling me a few weeks ago about a situation uh, where their, uh, an adult really hurt their child, said some hurtful things to their child. As you can well imagine, this parent was ready to go to war. You know, we're protecting our kids. We do that. That's what we do, right? It's instinct. And so they were gearing up and arranged the time to meet with this adult and said, you know, basically in their mind they're saying, look, you're going to hear what I have to say and we're going to, you're not going to treat my, my child like that. But they prayed about it first, which was a good thing. And the Lord spoke to them and convicted them and so by the time they got to this encounter, they had a little different perspective and they said it was only the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit prompted me to just start listening and asking questions. And I discovered that this person was going through some deep levels of stress and hurt themselves and pain. And they had inadvertently taken it out on my child. And as we talked, you could sense their defenses falling down. And they apologized to me and they apologized to my child. And the end result was... I didn't say everything I wanted to say, but I got the result and even more that I was hoping to get. Isn't that what it's about? What I think is hard for us sometimes when we're so passionate about the truth and so passionate about, about what is right, sometimes I think we think that because we're right, we can say anything, do anything, act any way we want to because we are right. But that doesn't seem to be the spirit of Jesus. It doesn't seem to be the spirit of Paul. Paul says twice in 23 and 24, he says, I have tried to do everything I can with a clear conscience. And by that, we tend to interpret that to mean I'm not, I'm not doing any blatant sin. And that's probably true. But it's in the context of being humble. And I think what Paul means, as well as his behavior, 
in other settings, he's also in these moments trying to walk away from them with a clear conscience. Walking away saying, I responded to the best of my ability the way Jesus would. I've walked away with a sense of, I don't need to, I don't, I don't sense God's conviction on me because I didn't handle that correctly. And it's not that he always succeeds, but that's his goal. And Paul was right in this setting. I mean, in that room, he's the only person that was right in that room. And yet, his spirit, his attitude, his gentleness, respect, humility, kindness. Because acting right is an integral part of being right. Acting right is an integral part of being right. We think being right means I believe the right things, but being a Christian is more than just believing the right things. And that's where I get convicted. And that's where we struggle. Because a part of believing right means that we also want to act right. And we have a goal in mind, not that people will know we're right, Our goal is that people will interact with us and maybe walk away a little more interested in Jesus. With each other, we interact, and and when we're done, we walk away and think, maybe people are, are a little more open to having Jesus continue to work in our lives as we want him to work in our lives. And our interactions with people don't discourage them, they encourage them. You don't lead people away from Jesus, but toward Jesus. And it may end up that no one even has a clue that we are right. But they do know that Jesus is right. And that Jesus is the answer to the struggles that they're facing, as he's the answer to the struggles we're facing. I do think it comes back to prayer. This is why we keep doing the prayer vigils and and why I'm encouraging us to finish strong this week. Fill up those hours. It's not just so we can say, hey, we filled up the hours. But it means that people are encountering God. People are stepping back and saying, I have enough space. There's enough space. There's enough time. There's room for God to speak into my life that often there isn't. And I'm setting aside that time, and it's important enough to me to let God speak into my life that I want to make that time, make that room. Asking God to help me communicate like Jesus. Someone wrote me this week and said, as I've been listening to these sermons and how it keeps coming back to prayer and thinking about the prayer vigil, it struck me that really what we're talking about is not Please, God, answer my prayers. But it's really acknowledging that prayer is the answer. And that it's in prayer that we encounter the reality of God. And in prayer, God can speak into our lives. And in prayer, we can have space for God to change us, to help us, and and to give us the grace that we all need to communicate 
like Jesus. I think one of the most fascinating things in this whole passage is right at the end, when Paul is talking to Agrippa and he says, you know, you know the, you believe the prophets, right? You know the prophets. And, and he says, he interrupts him. He says, Paul, are you trying to convince me in such a short time to be a Christian? And Paul, I can almost see Paul, a smile building on his face saying, short time, long time. I just want you to know what I know. I just want you to experience what I've experienced. And then he adds that little line that we kind of think of a throwaway line, except for these chains. I think that's profound. Because if it were me, I think I'd want to say, hey, I'll tell you what, why don't we just trade places for a few minutes and let's see how you like that. Now let me talk to you about Jesus while you're chained to the wall. He doesn't, his goal, everything about his being and his communication is not to get back at these people who have hurt him. His goal is, It's not that they would know he's right and we've come to see we're wrong. His goal is that they would know Jesus and experience the transforming power of Jesus. Not the chains, not the beatings, but Jesus. As I read that passage again, I said, Lord, help me to want that I mean, to so want to communicate like Christ that I want that for people too. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for us. Gracious Father, let it be so. Let it be so. Give us hearts that are more interested in leading people to you, breaking down walls and barriers building bridges to you more importantly proving we're right looking good making life easy we ask this through Jesus